You're listening to episode 266 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a human connection coach, speaker, and mental health advocate with an insatiable sense of curiosity and adventure, always asking more questions and using the power of stories to teach, learn, and grow. It's about allowing for room to grow, and this podcast focuses on three main pillars, human connection, personal growth, and freedom. We cover topics like relationships and cultivating genuine supportive connections with ourselves and others, speaking your truth, shattering personal barriers, radical self-acceptance, and courageously leaning into your skill sets. Whether it's a solo episode or bringing on highly curated guests with incredible stories, experiences, and expertise to share, we're leaning in and taking the entire idea of growth to the next level, all while still covering the uncomfortable topics that many of us like to avoid. There's always more room to grow. Let's do this. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. Emily here. And today's episode is so special. I I have to say out of over 260 episodes of this podcast to date so far, this was one of my favorite. I wouldn't even call this an interview. This was definitely more of a, a conversation. This was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this podcast. Um, it was incredibly powerful. It was transformative. We also managed to have a lot of laughs around some very serious topics. Um, it was just really, really special. So much so that we are going to be doing a part two. So today's episode is with Traver Bohm. And I reached out to Traver after he posted a video on Instagram following the murder of a young woman in the UK and talking about, we were sort of discussing how uh, this was an issue of systemic violence in the male culture that needs to be changed from the ground up. And Traver is, is so uniquely positioned to talk about these types of issues. He's the author of two different books. He's a two-time uh, TED speaker, TEDx speaker. He's a men's coach and founder of the Uncivilized Men's Movement, which is radically redefining the way men around the globe experience their masculinity by uniquely blending both primal elements of manhood with massive doses of consciousness. And he has a professional background in bodyguarding, mixed martial arts, traditional Chinese medicine and meditation. He is also managing to teach people how to use the the inevitable pain in their lives as fuel for growth and positive change, which is a lot of what we talk about on this podcast as well. And one of the many reasons why we're planning part two is that we didn't even get to have enough time to get into a huge portion of his personal story and journey as well. So for more on all of that, check out Traver in the show notes. Um, I also referenced both of his TEDx talks, his books, all of the things so that you can go follow him, go check him out. But today we are going to be talking about uh, a, a few different main topics. One of them is how men show up in relationships and the biggest reason why women end relationships, excluding abuse. Abuse is, is separate from, from this part of the conversation and how men can cultivate a superpower to make the feminine feel safe in really potentially unexpected ways. And, you know, it's really interesting because most of Traver's um, audience is actually women because he, he has a way of teaching where he identifies things that I will hear him say. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. And it's almost like I'm learning about myself at the same time as he's teaching about men. (laughs) Really, really fascinating. So we get into more of that. We also get into the incredibly powerful message that Traver has for men everywhere and how he's looking to change the entire culture and spread his message, along with addressing where men need to take responsibility for their own emotional health as well. We get into men's mental health and the mountain of male trauma that often goes unaddressed as males have so much less social support than women and their suicide rate is three times higher as well, which is devastating. 
We also get into Traver's take on one of the biggest reasons why he believes mass shootings end up happening and what to do about it and what we can learn from our pain too. Super, super powerful episode. I cannot wait for you to not only listen, but to share this one. If you've never shared another episode of the Room to Grow podcast, this is the one to share. Please share this on your social media uh, with a friend who needs to hear it, maybe with your partner. Um, tag Traver. Uh, it, he's all, his uh, handles listed in the show notes. Try, tag me over at Emily Goff Coach. We would love to hear from you to thank you for listening and all of those things. And this episode is also a little bit longer than usual um, because we couldn't stop talking about these amazing topics. <laughs> so it is a little bit longer. I don't want to take up any more room with the intro. Let's dive in. Traver, I'm so pumped, dude. Seriously, I am so excited to have you on. And I, I was just telling you that um, I said in my previous life, uh, like two and a half years ago, that I had heard your story. And I don't even remember if it was your TED Talk. I don't remember if it was on a podcast or what it was. And when I invited you on the podcast, I didn't know that it was you. And then when I started doing my background <laughs> research, I was like, oh my God, it's the same guy. <laughs> eerily similar story to some other guy that you heard of right because your story is so distinct i'm like there's definitely no one else whose story i'm mistaking this for (laughs) wow 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 so i would i know i know i just you're asking some questions but i would love to know what was your old life (laughs) so my old life was um i think i i you know it's it's i was talking to a friend about this a while ago that it's like people who've been through very traumatic like sort of life-changing moments it's Mm -hmm. almost like you you recognize that in other people you're like oh Mm -hmm. yeah I see you (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, um I was in a relationship for nine years with somebody we lived together I I was working corporate job all the things and I'd started to transition into online but um I wasn't really it was kind of it was in a different realm I was doing kind of like more nutrition and fitness and all that stuff and uh one Christmas Eve got a knock on the door (laughs) and it was his old girlfriend who he had been having an affair with for our entire relationship off and on <laughs> for nine years. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I found out he had a secret house, 170 meters from our driveway uh, for several years. Um, yeah, it was, my entire life went up in smoke in a single second. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I sold everything, sold the house, ended the relationship, all the things. And then I packed a single suitcase uh, and went and lived in Bali until the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, I ask guys a lot or people in our scenario or who have been in our scenario say, what was the day that you knew everything you thought to be true was no longer true? Ooh, and that's question. for so many of us there. I know the day I just got chills. Yes, I did too. I know the exact day. And so many people with your scenario are like, oh, the day I got that phone call, the day this thing happened, everything changed. And on some level, thank goodness, because it rewrited or created the opening for a different path. Yep. But oh boy, are those some fun times to Aren't live they through. Aren't they good times? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost like, I don't know if you experienced this as well, but sometimes it's almost that moment where you float up out of yourself and you're looking down and you're like, oh, this is, this is some shit we're going to go through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're about to have. This is an A&E movie. <laughs> right? Seriously. Like, this isn't real. <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. He had a house. Yeah right down the street from you. Yeah. We had like walked by it, um, every single day. And we noticed when it had been purchased a few years earlier, because it it turned out that someone close to him had, had bought it. And uh, these few years earlier, 
and we're, we were both pretty handy and we would talk about the renovations that were being done on the house and mm. it turned out he was the one doing the renovations <laughs> i'm like did you ever sit him down and be like okay how do you pull this off like how do you have are you a sociopath are you a psychopath <laughs> like how do you how do you have that much cognitive distance between one part of your life and another Oh, I had, I had so many questions and to his credit, he, he answered most of my questions. I, I don't think he told me the truth for a lot of them. And some of them, I think he literally didn't even know. Like, I think that it had started so early that he, he told one lie and one Mm -hmm. lie turned into another, Mm -hmm. turned into another, where you're building a house of cards. You you couldn't start telling the truth at that point because it it would cause everything else to fall apart around him. For sure. So yeah. And, uh, Yeah. So that, that was my previous life, but I want to get into your previous life. Sure, 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 sure. I'm happy to dive in. That's such an incredible story. When I did that year travel, uh, I would just talk to people who had experienced loss. And so much of it was just like, you know, hand on the forehead, like, oh my God, what did you just tell me? (laughs) Seriously. Holy shit. (laughs) Stories like yours over and over and over. Right. I start to think, is this the norm? Right. Like actually getting through life on without like massively being damaged. Is that (laughs) like the oddity? What I think is so beautiful is that there's so many of those people that have those stories who have taken it and turned it into gold. And, and I recognized so early on, I I said to, I said to my partner, I think my partner at the time, like the day after, I think I was like, I will take this and I will make this the best thing to ever happen to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) And he's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I think I also just gave you your first book. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's true. Thank you. (laughs) Uh I literally remember, and we can dive into the full story in a minute, but the day my ex-wife, ex-wife left. One of the very, very first things I sit, I heard in my head was, oh, this is going to be an incredible story. Right. And I had the same thing. I was like, oh my God, like the dramatics of this, mm-hmm. of this stuff. Right. Sometimes I almost feel like some of these stories, at least for me, sometimes my story can be so dramatic that, that people get distracted by it and it takes away yeah. from the point that I'm trying to make. I'm like, right, oh, no, right, I have right, more right. to say. Right, right, right. <laughs> but if you talk to someone who's experienced real loss they're like yeah yeah that's fine the loss doesn't really matter yeah they're like like, okay so the vehicle of it doesn't matter yeah like let's get to the point but everybody else like whoa 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 whoa, wait a minute wait a minute minute." (laughs) you start to get so used to telling it that you just like almost say it in passing and then people have like a heart attack moment they're like what what did you just say (laughs) yeah it's almost a danger for you know i have a very good friend uh, whose daughter committed suicide. And he uses that story as an inspiration to, for all kinds of like for business stuff for leadership for et cetera. But he said in the beginning, because it was his life and it was his day-to-day reality, he could talk about it, but he said, no one would be able to get past that. Yes. So they'd miss the, like he'd get these after action reports after like a conference and people would be like, I didn't hear another word after you said my daughter took his own life. So he had to figure out ways to kind of massage the message so that it wasn't so affronting or so stopping to people. But I get that. Yeah. If if you've kind of like plugged along and haven't had any real obstacles to get over, you know, like, oh, at the end of climbing Everest, I have a toe pain and the toe pain (laughs) is the importance. You're like, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute." (laughs) What just happened? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
Well, thank I you for it. having me on. <laughs> oh, thank, yeah. Now, now we're talking about me. So I'm like, I, you know, we were saying we think it's going to be kind of more conversational than interview style. But please tell us sure. about you because I need people to hear about your former life and all of mm. the details. And then we're going to talk about some big, big talk. I have big plans for you today, Trevor. We're going to yeah, talk about some good. things. <laughs> uh, the former life. There, there are some different elements I should probably share of it. It was the cookie cutter foundational like dream i was the guy who had it all like i hate to, to say it it sounds so cliche and so douchey but you know i, I had a master's degree in chinese medicine i was I open owned my own acupuncture practice i owned the most successful gym in santa barbara california i was married to the girl in my dreams we had a baby on the way like i had checked every damn box you can imagine checking and it all fell apart but the other piece of the, God, I checked every box and, and should have been, in quotes, the happiest, most joyful, actualized human, I was miserable. And I didn't know I was miserable. You could look at the other characteristics of that story, which was I was high from 8 a.m. until midnight. I drank a little bit most nights of the week. I had a really, really, really healthy relationship with internet porn. Uh, I worked out twice a day. I would start three or four businesses a year. It was just like a constant. I didn't sleep for more than 90 minutes at a time without having to get up and like pace the halls of my house. Uh, I was not okay by any means. And in very rapid succession, my ex-wife lost the pregnancy, decided that was a sign from the universe that we should get divorced. And my business partnership, which was completely separate, uh, also came apart the very next day. So it was this boom, 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 boom of a domino of like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Oh, fuck. I need to reevaluate my entire life because there's a central point to all of this loss and all of this, all of these dysfunctional relationships. And that central point is me. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop trying to figure out you want to know a really crazy story? Let me throw this in here. Tell me all the crazy uh, stories. The <laughs> night before. Yeah. So this is like, you know, early January and I was a competitive athlete, professional athlete my entire life. So from like age five, I had written goals. Like as a swimmer, my coach would pull us aside and be like, I know you have shitty handwriting, but like write down what you want to be in the hundred I am next year. So this new year's I hadn't written any goals, which was like, what's going on with me? Something's not right with me. And so I still have the journal that like mid-January, January, it was actually January 8th. I know the exact date. I wrote, like, I'm not writing goals this year because I'm sick of adding 10% to what I did last year and making that the focus, 10% more money, 10% on my deadlift, blah, 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 blah. And I was really upset. I was like, I'm not going to write another fucking goal. I have to find my voice. I have to find why I'm living in a way that's so incongruent with the message I put out in the world. I need to figure out what's going on inside of me. And I was very angry. Like, I'm not going to set another fucking goal until I do that. And the next morning over breakfast, my wife tells me she's leaving. The next morning. The next morning, right? Like the synchronicities in life, when you start to, to see the pieces of the puzzle, it, it, they punch you in the face at the time. But then looking back, you're like, oh, this was the path I, I was intended to take, like that I, I was going to have to move through at some point. And these were all of the signs leading up to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, wow. it was it was crazy. So that happened. So this whole how and I literally remember writing. You, you said the words like the house of cards has fallen. Mm. Like now, what do I do? Uh, I've created a relationship based on no intimacy. I've created a business based off my ego. I, I have. I'm suffering in ways that I'm not willing to admit, or I don't know how to access this pain, but it's so deep and so overwhelming that I numb the shit out of it in these eight different ways. I don't know who I am as a person. And most importantly, I don't know who I am as a man. And that opened up a, a whole separate can of worms, but it was that, that lack of clarity, the clarity about the lack of clarity that was so stunning in that moment and so piercing in that moment, right? I get asked all the time, why do people have to hit rock bottom before they make change, especially men? And for me, it was, I am, and this, I don't want this to sound arrogant, but I'm strong enough and intelligent enough to lie my way and figure my way out of most problems. Yet this was such an overwhelming situation that I knew I couldn't fake my way out of it. So I was like, okay. I can't talk my way out of this. I can't start a business. I can't throw money at this. I can't throw physicality at it. I actually have to do the work. And that was both the oh fuck moment and the thank God moment because I knew I had no choice but to do the work that was necessary, that was so necessary that I desperately wanted to do but didn't know how to do. So that was my old life. And it, it literally feels like, you know, pre-loss, post-loss, or, or pre-falling, pre-rock bottom, post-rock bottom. Sometimes it, it's it's funny how it can almost feel like like lifetimes ago because you're so removed from that version of yourself. You're like, who mm. was that? Like, I don't even know 100%. who that is anymore. <laughs> yeah. But I love some of the things you were mentioning here, especially in terms of not only the realization that you were the one who was going to, you were the one at the epicenter of this, you were going to be the one who was going to have to get out of it. And mm -hmm. I also think it's really important to note the sense of underlying relief that mm -hmm. you felt mm -hmm. where it's like, that was what you were searching for all along. And I think there are so many people, especially men, but so many people who are coasting through life, settling, trying to find the different coping mechanisms to get them through, especially after this fucking shit show of the last year we've been through. And it, it's just one layer on top of another. And then it creates even more pain as you start peeling off the layers because you have to work so much harder to, to get through all of those layers to get to the core. And it often takes like this super traumatic life experience sometimes to wake us up. Like, it, yeah. and, and it shouldn't be that hard, right? Like, why can't we figure out ways to get to those layers? And I think this is part of what your work involves is getting to those layers without necessarily having to hit that absolute rock bottom first. <laughs> yeah. It feels like, do you ever see the, uh, the documentary on, I think it's fire Island or whatever that, that fry uh, that like, I never did, but I, I've read about it. Yeah. Yeah. Fire festival, it, I guess. Yeah. yeah fire fest was a complete shit show. And essentially the analogy is, that I feel like most people, especially most men, especially high performing men, like we live in a personal pyramid scheme where we keep having to steal from the future to pay the current. And mm -hmm. at some point that's unsustainable. And it really requires the entire system falling down because it's just one more, I can do it. I just, okay. I just have to figure out how to get, just have to get out of debt one more time. Just have to, okay, I'm okay. And it's, there's never a point where it just goes, oh, fuck. Okay. 
she just left. The kids won't talk to me. This is my third DUI, like, or I have cancer. Somebody died. There's, there needs to be a, a, an intervention that's bigger than our egos and bigger than our capacity to outrun the problem. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, especially with high performers, it's we set ourselves up with all of these resources to prevent us from having to do the actual work or experience the pain that we don't want to feel. And I, I see this over and over and over and over, especially with men who are higher than normal intelligence and then make more money than usual. And they're getting all of this affirmation day in and day out about like, wow, you're so smart. You're so capable. You're so good at your job. You just close that deal. And you have no idea who your kids are and your wife's on her third affair. And I'm not painting women as the negative here. This, this also switches roles too. But so many people, what's actually underneath it is you have no fucking idea who you are because you've never had to. It's the curse of the gifted child or, or, or however we want to call it, the curse of the high performer. You never actually have to figure out who you are, which is why so many professional athletes end up falling on their faces three months after their careers end. Because suddenly they, they oh, wow, I'm not Johnny the football player or guys who you know, lose their jobs. Like, oh, I'm not Stuart the amazing stockbroker. I have no idea who I am. We're never pulled aside in like junior high or freshman year of high school. Like, hey, for the next semester, you're going to figure out who you are, <laughs> right? Like that, that doesn't happen. It's like, no. here's the Pythagorean <laughs> theorem and some other shit you have to memorize. And so, yeah, I think one of the beauties, and I want to say this with compassion, the beauties of loss is the forced look in the mirror. It's like, oh, you're not really welcoming reality. Okay, here is a dump truck of reality that just emptied its contents in your living room. Now you can't get around it. Okay, <laughs> let's get to work. And as you said, on some level, it's very relieving because I want to, at my core, want to deal with reality because I know that's how I can make actual change. But reality is scary, and reality is confronting. And most people would rather live in fantasy than deal with reality. Said a mouthful there. Isn't that the truth? And this is, this is so interesting to me because I've, I've started working with um, a lot more men and which I think is sort of the path I've been leading towards the whole time because I spent like 12 or 14 years in working in exclusively highly male dominated industries. And that's, I'm actually more used to working with men than with women in a lot of ways. And it's, it's, I see so much of what you're describing. Like I work with very high performing males, top of their fields, a lot of them, you know, former athletes. And there's also like this mental toughness that is bred into them. And meanwhile, I'm teaching them how to like tap into what, what they actually feel and who they are and having more compassion for themselves and to see the impact that, that that type of work has on them and in like ripple effects, like in, in various aspects of their lives is just incredible. And I also really want to highlight how you were talking about living in the reality, which to me also really underscores the idea of presence mm. and how important it is to have presence. And I mean, there's so many things we're going to get into, but since, since this came up, <laughs> mm. I would love to talk about the idea of presence in relationships because mm. I feel like this is an epidemic a little bit in terms of, and this is not just men, women do this too, but I typically are, I'm seeing, 
in my personal experience, it tends to be a little bit more often men. And sure. it could be for a variety of reasons because they may be trying to escape reality, right? <clears throat> but being in the room with somebody, you can be sitting right next to somebody and I've never felt lonelier. And you can be trying to have a conversation. And like, even if they're not actively on their phone, you can just tell that they're not, they're not there. They're not present. Mm -hmm. And what, what does that look like for you? And like, how, how do you work with men around that? And mm -hmm. you know, what is, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? It's a great question. It is also an epidemic. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at it and it's the reality of it, <clears throat> excuse me, is that it is an actual epidemic no different than cancer, no different than heart disease, no different than COVID, uh, real COVID. It is an epidemic. So why is it an epidemic? Well, one, we have handheld distraction devices attached to us at all times. And we have a lifestyle that's unsustainable and a lifestyle that isn't feeling heart soul based. So it's like we have a lifestyle based off of eating cotton candy and yet we're curious as to why we're constantly seeking out more and more sugar, more and more sugar, more and more sugar to use just an analogy. So the masculine, I'm on this earth to bring structure and order to chaos. That is what masculine energy does. It's what we do best. Yet we're not taught that that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're also not taught in the relationship sphere. And this is massive that this is from a good buddy of mine named Dewey Freeman, that there has to be contact in relationship. You and I, <clears throat> even though I'm not in your living room, I'm probably a thousand miles away from you. We are in contact. There is an emotional contact. We've laughed together. We've told jokes together. We've, there's contact. We're touching each other in some capacity, even though it's not physical. So a lot of people probably just tuned out to that because they don't get it. But every relationship has contact. That contact point, if it's not physical, if I don't have my hand on your shoulder, then that contact is energetic. If I'm not present, if my energy is in my phone, is on Instagram, is at work, is on my next accomplishment, on my next assignment, on the argument I had with my partner last week, on the argument I want to have with my mom in two weeks, then there is no contact, no different than if I went to put my hand on your shoulder and it slid right through you. Mm. So when I talk to men about presence, one, we just need to define it, right? We need to tell guys that there is a friction, the rubbing together, the contact point between masculine and feminine energy, and not to get woo-woo on you, between the male and the female, there has to be contact. If there isn't, it is far more traumatic and disruptive and upsetting to the feminine than it is to the masculine. It is still upsetting and traumatic to us, which is why we check out on our phones. But one of the most goddamn like upsetting things I've ever written and put publicly was women leave us when they can't feel us. And it was like 2000 replies from women being like, thank God someone said it. And 2000 replies from men being like, go fuck yourself for being a white knight. I was like, you guys don't understand that if there's no contact and there's no friction, then you literally feel like you're starving as a woman or someone who's deeply in their feminine energy. It could be male or female. So when I'm present, I'm actually solid. 
hear these words, you guys listen to this. Like I am a solid entity when I'm back in my body, when I'm looking you in the eye, when I can feel you, you will ping off of that solidity like a radar. Like your energy is going to go out and like, boop, I feel him and I come back. I feel him and I come back. I feel him and I come back. When you feel me and you know I'm there, this is a big word. So hang with me, folks. You will feel safe. Not in the like, oh, I'm not worried someone's going to break into my house and shoot me safe. Just the global, I'm okay. The world's okay. I can live my life safety. So when we say to, when I say to men, it's not just about fucking sitting there and being present. It's about actually providing a presence that your partner can feel so that she feels safe in the world. That opens their minds to, oh, so I can't just sit there and watch football. You can but you need to know that that's not present. That's something that you and your partner can do together. You can say like, hey, let's check out and watch a movie. And then you're physically touching each other and, and there's some other form of presence. But that's, this is a hard thing to articulate that the masculine needs to bring solidity, like a pole that you will ping on and off of a thousand times, perhaps in a minute. And if I check out and there's nothing there, then it feels like, again, you're putting my hand on my, your hand on my shoulder, but it just goes right through me. Does that make sense? Or did I just rant on weird shit? You, you framed that beautifully. And, and I've, I've read that, uh, that piece that you put out as well. And I, I completely resonate with it, with it too, because I, I had to end a relationship with somebody where it fucking broke my heart to walk away. And it was ultimately, it boiled down to the fact that he didn't have presence and I never felt mm. fully safe with him. He, he, um, you know, he's a beautiful human. He's an incredible human. He's, he has all these incredible values. He's honest, like all of these things, but I never felt fully safe in, in any variety of ways. You know, it, 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 this can go down to like the bedroom emotionally, like all of these different areas. I never felt like he was there. Like it was like feeling around in the dark and you're like, are, are you there? Are you with me? Are you on Instagram? Like what? <laughs> I don't know where you are. And that's, that is so true. And I know we're speaking in heteronormative terms, but Sure. This is like feminine, masculine. Everyone has both. It's just a matter of who identifies kind of more with, with one versus the other. It's that polarity piece. But yeah, this is what a beautiful explanation that, that you used to describe that. Because I, I think that, that you frame it in such a way that it's much easier to make more tangible a little bit. Yeah, and what we have to ask men is, what are you feeling when you are present that is uncomfortable? So if I have a shit ton of unresolved trauma, or I have a shit ton of anxiety and stress in my body, then for me to be present, it's going to be uncomfortable. So I have to, this is the beautiful gift for men listening to this, or those who identify as the masculine, or those who identify, period. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how you identify. Everybody needs to be present. It's when you get present and you're uncomfortable, that's one of the reasons you also want to check out. It's one of the reasons you also want to leave your body. It's one of the reasons why distraction is so easily sold to society. So it's also the gift for whoever's listening to this to go, wow, I want to be present for my partner. That is the greatest gift and, and act of service I can give to my partner. Yet, in order to do that, the greatest gift and act of service I will give to myself is the ability to be present. Because that means I'm going to have to work through a bunch of shit. But that's also going to make it so that I'm okay sitting in a room by myself. I'm okay looking in the mirror and being like, like that guy. He's a good dude. I can feel him. When we can't feel ourselves, we're in trouble.
and we can't feel our partners, we're in trouble. I remember this, and, and Emily, this, God bless her, but I also remember times where I literally would put my hand on my ex-wife's stomach and look at her and say in my head, I don't even know if you're here. Mm. I didn't understand any of this. Yeah. Just like a guttural animalistic feeling. And I think one of the reasons I was high every day in my relationship, I did have so many distractions was I actually couldn't feel her. And she probably will tell you the exact same thing of that. She couldn't feel me. So presence, I, I tell this to guys, cause I want to frame it in a way that makes it exciting. Like it's a superpower. It is literally a superpower. And I've had to have conversations. If you want to take this one step further, I had this conversation yesterday with a very, very powerful man who is having challenges with women in his life because he will actually have a 10 minute phone call with somebody and then hang up and they're like, wow, that was really nice. That was lovely. And then not talk to them for two weeks and then have them message him and say, Hey, what happened? What did I do? How come you don't want to date Mary and have my kids? He's like, well, I was just having a phone call, like a, like a, a get to know you call. And I was like, yeah, but you are so present that it, they are so starving for that presence. And you bring such a high potency presence that you actually have to be careful how you use it because it's going to feel like, like what's to you a normal conversation. Cause we have deep, intimate conversations all the time. It will feel like a love conversation with someone who's starving. I totally, yeah, I feel that. I feel that hundred percent. And I love that you're bringing up like the other, the other side of this, because it, there, um, there's a really incredible sex therapist that I've had on, on the podcast, uh, Renell Nelson a couple of times. And I referenced her in the episode I came out with around, uh, the nine year affair, which was, um, we all eat lives when our hearts are hungry. And that's, that's sort of another, that was what made me think of it as well Is that when we're starving, we will look for any, any little, you know, tidbit that we can get. And, and that, that sense of presence, especially when there are a lot of women walking around, I'm so fortunate. And, and I think you probably feel the same way that we get to have these incredible conversations because we've got such amazing humans around us. Sure. And we can almost get into that bubble world where we forget that that isn't normal for a mm-hmm. lot of people. And I'm always so grateful to have that, but then, yeah, there are all kinds of people out there who don't get to experience that. And they're just looking for, for that, that presence ultimately. And of course they're going to latch onto it because why wouldn't they, they're, they're starved because human connection is, is something that we need to survive as human beings. 100%. And there's such a, another epidemic lack of it. Mm-hmm. in society right now, in culture right now. Yeah. I, t- I said to him, imagine the, think back of the last 50 interactions this woman has probably had with single men. So you've got like 32 dick pics, you've got 12 what's ups, you've got <laughs> nine, like, I don't, I don't know, you tell me. And then you came in and said, so how do you feel today? And it was like, poof. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> literally blew her wide open where her nervous system is so used to shit and you brought caviar. Of course, right? Can you not see it? And he could see it finally from her perspective, but that's, that's, that's how potent presence actually is. And that's a conversation that I'm trying to get into the male culture, but it's just been, it, it hasn't been there. Yeah. Right. We still have so many men who think, but I went to work every day. There's a roof over their heads. I didn't cheat. I wasn't abusive. It was literally just the, but I didn't do anything wrong. 
So why is this thing falling apart? It's like, but we're not in debt. I'm like, yeah, but your partner wants to be rich or your want partner wants abundance. And we've been conditioned as the male animal to just make sure there's nothing wrong. And most of us are fucking that up. But like, that's the baseline. That's where the bar is, especially in the social sphere or dating sphere. Well, and this is, the, and you know, when, when, when we think about what you're saying, which is also true, it is heartbreaking. Like it's absolutely heartbreaking. And then you look at the fact that women are, what is it, 70 or 80% more likely to end and uh, initiate divorces? Yeah. And, and that usually that's after like years of, of practically begging to have changes made. And here's another part that I find really interesting is that I think that there are a lot of, in, in my personal experience, there have been some males who are so used to very volatile reactions sometimes from the, the feminine mm-hmm. that then if you go into a relationship with a male who isn't used to that and you speak in very like calm level tone whatever there might still be tears sometimes because sometimes we're just emotional okay but <laughs> when you yeah, yeah when you have that and then it's like they don't they don't get that you're actually really upset if you're speaking really calmly they're so used to the volatility that they're like they don't even recognize how serious the issue is because you're speaking to them in a calm manner so the alarm bells don't go off <laughs> it's not a big deal yeah. It's like, oh, she's problem. cool. She's fine. Everything's fine. She's saying the words and I hear them, but like everything's, everything's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I was completely guilty of that in my marriage of saying like, well, if it really bothered her, she would have brought it up again. Yeah. Right. And just how heartbreaking to think that this woman actually spoke and shared things with me. And I went, okay. Right. And then probably thought, well, this is hopeless. So I'm not going to bring it up. And my male brain was like, yeah, if it was a big deal, we'd be, we'd still be talking about it, but, but we're not but it got yeah. put in the resentment file. It got put in the, the one foot out the door file. And, and so I see, you know, relationship is such a fascinating medium for figuring out or just viewing what have people been taught? What, are, what is the patterning that you have as your default? What are you fucking terrified of? What are you not seeing that's right there? What are you seeing that's not there? And we, I just love working with couples and working in relationship because it's so easy from a mile above to see the patterns, yeah. especially male patterns. Cause I live them and find them more easy to, to point out than female patterns. But you're right. We have so many guys who either just don't know, like literally just don't have no idea about any of this stuff that we're talking about or have been conditioned out of feeling it of like, Oh, she's crazy. Oh, she just gets this way around her period. Oh, she's just an emotional. She's God, like here's, here's a spreadsheet as to why you shouldn't feel how you should feel. And we don't teach them us how to be in relationship in a healthy manner. And we don't teach women how to be in a relationship in a healthy manner either. I also want to add to the eight out of 10 divorces are female led a big chunk of that has abuse in there. And so I don't want people. Yes. Because yeah. I've had a lot of kickback from guys that are like, well, they're just a bunch of fucking Disney princesses. And I was like, yeah. And about mm-hmm. half of those have abuse and a good percentage of other ones have abuse that they don't even realize is abuse. Yeah. So I don't want to frame that statistic as, gosh, look at all these women leaving. Yes. Does it happen? Do I have tons of male clients who are, I did everything right. This is the thing she's now banging the pool boy and wants like whatever the cliche <laughs> is but we also do not talk about abuse much in this culture and it is rampant. 
I'm so glad that you brought that up because a lot of times when, even on this podcast, when I'm talking about things, you know, relationship issues, I always preface it saying like, this does not apply in, in cases of abuse and stuff like that, because it's totally separate. But then that also almost, and I'm not the person to, to be equipped to talk about it, but then that almost leaves people hanging who are in the abusive situation. It's like, okay, well, if this doesn't apply here, then where do I go to, mm-hmm. to talk about this? And if they don't have access to the resources and stuff to deal with that, which most people don't male or female, right. it's, it makes things a lot harder and even more isolating too, which is mm. also heartbreaking. There's so many heartbreaking aspects to this conversation, unfortunately, but like if we can start to have more of these conversations, then hopefully it will prevent some of these other situations from happening. Yeah. And just bring recognition to it mm-hmm. that you're right. You and I live in a very unique bubble. Uh, I can get on the phone with one of a dozen very high caliber a very conscious, very successful man and either have them hand my ass to me because lovingly or pull me out of a problem that I don't know how to get out of myself. And most people are either desperately isolated or surrounded by people who, who simply are caught in the same pattern they are. And that in itself to me is heartbreaking. It is. It is. And, and I just, I always kind of look around my circle in amazement. There've been moments where I, I've looked around, I'm like, do I even deserve like the level of support that I have? Mm -hmm. And I had to kind of look at that from, from a, thank you, (laughs) from a worthiness perspective, like kind of going inward on that, but also then acknowledging, okay, if, if I am going to be able to get to where I'm going and provide the level of support that I need to be able to provide for others that I want to be able to provide for others, I have to have this level of support in order to do that. And to, to give that outward energetically Mm -hmm. as well. And you know, we, we give what we're given and I'm given so much. Like, I just want to continue to, to keep that cycle going as much as I can. Yeah. 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 It's so interesting. Okay. Well, I also want to talk about Sarah Everard. Okay. We need to talk about this because sure. you came out with like an awesome, um, IGTV about it that I just thought was so beautifully articulated and just really well done. And what I also really appreciate about you, Trevor, is that you have such a unique perspective on this. And, and I'd love for you to explain your background uh, a little bit more, cause I don't want it to be in my words, but sure. you, you have a, a really unique angle on this that I think puts you in a really incredible position to be able to speak about this, especially to be able to speak directly to the men, because part of, for anyone who isn't familiar with the Sarah Everard situation, um, it was a, a young woman in the UK who was kidnapped and murdered by a UK police officer and it has really opened up a wound. And mm-hmm. I think it's because a lot of women identified so closely with that. And she, she took all the precautions. Like she like, I, you know, was on the phone with her boyfriend, calling her boyfriend. She's wearing bright clothes because it was dark, but it was only like 9 p.m. Like she was doing all the, the right things. And this still happened to her. And mm-hmm. so many of us as women see ourselves in that position every single day. Mm-hmm. And this was the result. So tell us a little bit about your background and then let's get into like this, this conversation more in terms of like the, not all men and, and all of this type of stuff. Sure. I think the most important piece of my background to share first is that I am a little brother to two older sisters. Mm. And so I remember literally remember the conversation with my middle sister who I was closest to about her. And we lived, I grew up in Tokyo. So it was a bit of a side story, but that was, my reality for a while. And Tokyo is one of the safest cities in the world, or at least it is on the surface. And I remember at about 14, being 14, 
my sister, who was also, by the, by the way, I was a tiny 14 year old. I was one of those people <laughs> that like, I think I went through puberty at like 32. My sister <laughs> went through it at like nine. So she's like five, seven, 120 pounds. I'm four, seven, 72 pounds. And she's explaining to me how walking home, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the things she has to consider of like, is there a doorway there? If I get accosted, how do I get out? What are this group of guys doing? What is this person walking towards me? And Emily, it was like being hit in the head. I was like, I don't understand why you need to think about all that shit because I don't. And yet as a male, I was also in the five years that we lived there, I got the shit beat out of me two dozen times. She never did. But yet that was the consideration was sexual, mm -hmm. right? Like, like people didn't want to beat my sister up, but they wanted to do other things in the sexual realm to her that they didn't want to do to me. And so that was my initiation into, wow, things are different for men and women on this planet. Okay, cool. Welcome to the game. In my 20s, I worked for a company and a man named Gavin DeBecker. If you haven't read the book, The Gift of Fear, every human should read it. I've probably gifted over 250 copies of it. It's really it's well done. You think it is, right? It's about yeah. threat assessment. It's about trusting your gut. It's about violent situations. It's about stalking, et cetera. So here's the story. I flew from, actually, no, I was in New York and I wanted to see the Blair Witch Project. If you remember that terrible movie <laughs> and it was close, it was sold out. So I go to a bookstore in Greenwich Village. I'm 22 years old, buy this book, read it in one sitting. And for the first time in my life, decide to write an author a letter and was like, dear Gavin, this was the most insightful <laughs> book. I feel like a total dork. Like, thank you so much for writing it. <laughs> So and, cute. Yeah. In response, I think I was curious about bodyguarding at the time. I was like, could you recommend a bodyguarding school? And he or his, you know, whoever got the letter sent me back a job application. And for the next six years, I worked as a bodyguard and worked half of his business was physical protection. So you have someone that's stalking you. I live in your house with you for a couple of weeks. But the other half was let's analyze the stalking. Let's figure out who this person is. Let's read the letters and see what the languaging is about. Let's see, did this guy just lose his job? Where, where did, like all the factors that contribute to, is this an actual threat? Is it not? So that was part A of my background. Part B, I taught women's self-defense seminars for years and still do occasionally. It's just not my main business. So then I'm in the room with dozens and dozens and dozens of women, hundreds of women over the years who have told me the stories of, and in my very first workshop, we had a woman who was kidnapped by the same guy twice. Jesus Christ. Think about that. I can't. He kidnaps, imagine. escapes, he goes to jail, he gets out of jail, he kidnaps her again. Like, again, I just got chills. Like, that reality, when I couple that with what my sister told me, and, and I take the accumulation of every story of every woman who's ever been in a self-defense workshop, plus every woman I've ever met, and I put them together and say, okay, now let's also add in me too, because that's a factor where every woman on the fucking planet shared how at some point they've been harassed, sexually assaulted, sexually harassed by a boss, by a coworker, by a, everybody. And I go, huh, something's not right here. 
the male animal, my people, yes, bad shit happens to us, but we do it to each other. But we are the, we are the central figure, just like I was in the story 25 minutes ago. Why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we the ones going, hey, wait a minute. This, whoa, whoa, everybody stop right now. This is our team. Huh. Why are we outsourcing our problem to the people who are being affected by it? Why aren't we handling it? So take that background and then throw me in the position of having the ear of you know, tens of thousands of men and say, okay, I can't not speak about this in a way that's honest. I also don't buy into a lot of the cultural bullshit about arguing about hashtags. So I see where people don't want to deal with the root of the problem. So the last piece of my background that makes this insightful, I have a master's in traditional Chinese medicine, which the entire medicine is like, figure out the root, figure out the branch, figure out which one you need to address in what order. And I go, oh, arguing about hashtags, branches, relatively irrelevant. Oh, telling women they should be more careful. True, but fucking branch. What is the root? The root is male behavior. The root is male culture. The root is our entire culture that facilitates men acting like fucking animals and not only not putting a stop to it, but in, in some cases celebrating it. So, okay, let's have an honest conversation about this because it needs to fucking stop. And it's not going to stop by me changing my Instagram picture. It's not going to stop with hopes and prayers. It's not going to stop with me attacking someone who used a hashtag. It's going to stop when we shift the culture. I have a similar thought. I just did a, another video or a thought on mass shootings. Who's doing those? You know, it's when I hear like, man, someone was raped. I'm not like, I wonder what the rapist's name, was it Susan or Julia? I don't do that. I'm like, it's probably no. Bob. And when I hear about a mass shooting, I'm not like, hmm, Jessica or Delilah? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> These examples. <laughs> probably Steven. There's nothing I, funny about the situation we're talking about, but the examples are just making me laugh. <laughs> this is why I like, I want to shake the shoulders of the culture. Like, why are we fucking arguing? It's like, we're yelling about stuff that's, that's, I understand why people need to feel like they have control over some element of something that is completely out of their control. Men don't want to feel that they're lumped into a category that they don't belong in. And I get that. Mm -hmm. And if we give those men a different opportunity, they will take it. Right. When me too came, the reason I wrote my book was, was because when me too came out, all I read was article after article after article after blog about how bad men were. And, and it would tell people, stop yelling at non-rapists to not be rapists. Enroll them, that's the key word, enroll them into shifting the culture that doesn't allow for anybody to be a rapist, except for the extreme outliers who we're probably not gonna be able to handle. But it's not the outliers that are causing the problem. When Me Too came out, it wasn't like, John's a serial rapist who's raped a thousand women. It's no, my boss is a piece of shit. And, and so is her boss. And so is her boss. And so is her neighbor. And it's, it was this, it's, it's like, we, we look at the tip of the iceberg and go, oh, we need to focus here. But 99.9% .9 of the problem is the damn iceberg itself. So with Sarah Everhard, it was so in our faces because of how many women said she was just walking home. 
right? She was just walking home. I don't, and I know I'm a different animal because I'm a professional, I was a professional fighter, I was a bodyguard, but I'll walk through anywhere and I have zero thoughts of problems. And if I do, I know I'm going to handle it, but I don't even think about it. Like I don't have to spend my bandwidth, my life energy, the finite resource that I have thinking that someone's going to rape me ever. Like I just don't think about it. And so I want the male culture to one, acknowledge the problem. We're not, we won't, we like, we refuse to acknowledge the problem. Even after me too. It was like, well, those are someone else's bosses. I was like, well, fuck. This is, this is your boss too, bro. Right? Like he wasn't just, it, this, this isn't isolated cases. And so once we recognize the problem, we can do something about it. And this is where my work is, where I feel the most inspired is let's change the culture of men. Let's change the root of how we view sexuality. Let's change the root of how we view our role here on earth. Let's actually give guys something positive to want to be a part of so they don't feel lost. They don't feel confused. They don't feel angry. And they're not going to act out on a, no offense, smaller, weaker human who's most likely in a female package. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many things that we could talk about this because these types of issues are so systemic that they're even baked into the justice system. Like I, I told a male friend of mine, uh, we were talking about this, this whole situation. And I said to him, you know, I tend to, after living in Bali for a year, I tend to wear like crop tops a lot. And like, you know, if it's, if it's warm out, I'll wear like a short skirt or something. And I am aware every single time I walk down the street that not only in my so-called putting myself more at risk, even though you're, you're not because you can be wearing a parka and it won't matter, but that if something were to happen to me, that my Instagram page would get pulled up. My, what I was wearing would be dissected and everything else. And all of that would be used against me in a court of law, probably successfully to get off the defendant that whatever I was wearing was the reason why something bad happened to me. And, and that, that applies to any woman. It, you can, there was the, the Brock Turner case uh, a few years ago and the girl that he raped was wearing like a cardigan. And somehow that still ended up like getting brought up and well, she was wearing like a dress underneath. Okay, mm -hmm. when did that not become allowed? It's, it, there's just so many systemic issues to this and victim blaming and all of that. And like you said, it takes away from the root cause which is this culture that has been created where if, if something like um, a man asks a woman out, I get nervous if I get asked out and, and it's like, it's in person, especially. And I know that there's like a, a potential for an actual physical threat. I have to immediately gauge in my head. I'm like, if I say no, what are the potential consequences of this? Like physically to me, to my bodily harm potentially right now. <laughs> And it's, it's not something that anybody's have to deal with. Like, so how, how are you, I also really love the phrase that you said about, um, let, uh, let others be safe before I walk among them. Let's mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that. Let's talk about that. We need to change the culture. Like, I'm just going to come back to this over and over and over my people, men, we need jobs. And I'm not talking about we need employment. We need some role to fill or we find the, the one that lands in our lap. Even if that role is abusive asshole, at least I know what I'm supposed to do as an abusive asshole. Mm 
So when I give a guy a role of like, hey, what if there was the protector class? What if we were all on this secret team that everywhere we went, people didn't have to know about this. People were safer for we walked among them, right? And this came out of my bodyguarding days when I remember sitting in a room or like a big conference center and I knew who the five guys were on my team. And I knew if anything happened, these five guys, we were just going to take over this room, shut down the problem, get our, our principal out of there and we're going to fucking win. And that mentality carried with me afterwards of, hey, if I'm in a restaurant and something goes down, these people are lucky because I'm going to handle it. And it's not like a Rambo mentality of like, I need to walk around telling everybody, like go table to table when I go sit down, like, hey, you're, you're okay, I'm here. <laughs> Let my ego run the show. But what if that were the, there, there's this idea, Emily, that someone explained to me, and I, I may fuck up the word. It's either epistem or episteme. I think it's epistem, which is the underlying current of a society. Like what's so underlying that we don't even know it's there? In the West, it's capitalism, or it's progress, rather. It's progress. We will sacrifice everything in the name of progress, and we don't even know that that's okay. How many hundred, I think I, how many hundred years ago, it was like enlightenment, like everything was for the church. If you were doing something for God, everything was excusable. What if the epistem became protection? Like, hey, this doesn't happen on our watch. We have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of men who literally wake up and go, that shit's not happening on my watch. Will they get to every problem? No. But can we get rid of the bulk? Can we get rid of the 90% just from a guy who knew Brock and was like, hey, man, you don't get to go outside with her. You're wasted and you're a shitbag. And I know you're a shitbag, so I'm not letting you go outside with her. What if that were in the culture, right? I talked about in that video that most guy groups know there's an outlier and that outlier is dangerous. And they kind of like, well, you know, like, yeah, John gets a little bit weird when he drinks or like, you know what, like I've heard his ex-girlfriend say that he, you know, like he was a little bit physical, but like, he's a good guy, right? Like he's, he just means well. And however we want to excuse him. What if that group of guys actually was like, Hey, this isn't okay. There's this new download in the culture that says when we have an outlier guy, we as a group of men, get together and say, hey, man, we're not blaming you. We're not shaming you. We're not putting you down, but we're really curious. What goes on with you when you have a couple of drinks and you see a woman? Because we've all, we all know what's going on. And, and how can we support you in getting some help? Because this isn't okay with us. And if it continues, we're either going to take over it ourselves or you're just not going to be allowed here anymore. You're not going to belong with our group. Like what if just that conversation happened in every fraternity, in every corporate office, in every group or little tribe of men that existed because of that sentence, because of that mantra, let others be safer for I walk among them. And then what if all of those guys, even if they were individuals, wanted to be part of the solution, right? And, and this is where it gets nuanced them because a lot of guys are going to go, you know what, fuck that shit because of feminism. If we're equal, they can take care of themselves. And so we have to like unplug a bit of the programming that has gotten us to where we are and be honest about that route and then give those guys another opportunity. So again, if, if a male doesn't have a role, we're different than you guys are. We're different than women. We have to accept that as a society. When we give a male a role, he's going to take it. 
If we give that a male a role of you're a violent outcast, he's going to take it. We see this in certain communities. If we give the men a role of like, hey, you're here to be a part of the solution, carry that with honor. Be proud of that. We're going to celebrate that part of you. Then I think we have a shift overnight. And it's going to require some reorganization of the culture. And that's where we run into who has competing interests here. Who's going to be a dam in this, in this, or cog in this, in this system? And can we override that? Can we just get enough guys together? Can I get a mass of men? Can I get a million men to say, let others be safer as I walk among them? Fuck it. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you say. I don't care how much that upsets you or, you know, upsets your patterning or makes you feel like I have dominance over blah, 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 blah. Shut the fuck up. Everybody's safer. That's where I want to come in. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I can certainly support that. Like where, where do you feel like men's mental health in general and giving men more support in terms of mental health comes into this conversation because there are so many men who are in such deep pain and everyone has pain. I'm not, I'm not taking that away from, from women or anything like that by saying that men are often in a huge amount of pain because men have so much less support. Suicide rate is three times that of women. And there's, there's some fucking systemic issues there too. And how much of a role do you think we can take by giving men the support that they need and then watching the trickle down effect potentially to make more of men that make more men that more protector archetype that you're talking about. So remember I told you I just did a recording about mass shootings. Mm -hmm. It's all about grief. You want to solve mass shootings? You want to solve domestic violence? You want to solve violence? You want to solve all 90% of this issue? Look at grief. And it's this stack of grief, sadness, frustration, anger, rage. Think about like going up a ladder. And, and the circle that it's all in is entitlement. So we have a culture, my people, that aren't allowed to feel sad. Women aren't allowed to feel angry. Men aren't allowed to feel sad culturally, right? Mm -hmm. We just say like, a, that's a very blanket statement, but yet I find it to be true. I have no problem getting angry, right? Like I'm cool with anger. It makes me feel good. It's adrenalizing. My buddies will support me. Like, yeah, look at you. Fucking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I'm like, I'm super sad today. Not a lot of people are like, whoa, bro, that's awesome, man. Like, good for you. Fuck yeah, rage on. It's, it doesn't <laughs> happen. Yeah. So if we don't allow men to feel sad, then how can they access grief? If they can't access grief, they can't alchemize it and can't release it, then they can't get to sadness. Now, what sits on top of sadness and grief? If we skip through the frustration part, it's anger. There is this cliche that anger is sad's bodyguard. And so if I can't feel sad, if I have one exit for my emotions and that exit is anger, then that is where those emotions will go. If that exit gets damned, and stop because I'm not allowed to be angry because you can't do that, then that will build up and pent up and turn into rage. So we see this now expressed all over the world. We see it expressed in the headlines. Here, you make such a, a, a beautiful point because as someone who's been in the men's world now or the men's movement world for about five years, six years, I've watched a huge shift where six years ago in a workshop, I may ask guys, 
or, or the conversation may come up about sexual assault on men, about assault of their mothers, of, of violence from their fathers. And we would get a couple guys who may, may talk about it. But then after the workshop, they'd pull me aside and be like, I was raped by my neighbor. I watched my dad beat the shit out of my mom constantly. And I was eight and I didn't know what to do. Uh, I watched my, my best friend raped my wife. Like all of this stuff would come out after. Then two years ago, it started coming out in the middle of workshops where guys would raise their hands and be like, you know what? This happened to me. I was sexually assaulted by a kid as a kid. And so this mountain, I'm telling you this because there is this mountain of male trauma that we as a society aren't willing to admit exists. And we're not willing to admit exists for a valid reason, because how do you have compassion for the perpetrators while they're still perpetrating? Does that make sense? The root of perpetration so often is trauma. But the after effect of perpetration is anger, blame, resentment as it should be or as it can be. And so we're in this conundrum that we're not ready to recognize male trauma, but yet we keep yelling with hashtags how this is the last time we're ever going to allow the after effect of that trauma. So this is why I'm so grateful that men's groups and the men's movement, not just mine, but all of them have come about. And so many men, even though it's probably like 0.01% of the male population, at least now they know about it, right? My goal for this year is to make my movement a household name, not so that I get my fucking picture in a paper, but so that a guy goes, wow, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I, and I'm pissed. And you know what? I'm drinking a lot. Oh, I have another, I have an opportunity to deal with this before I get to the point that I pick up a gun. You know, my old boss, Gavin, said, it's, it's a brilliant question. How come we have so many suicide prevention centers, but no homicide prevention centers? Oh, that's a question right there. Right? Like if I, yeah. I can't call, call the police and like, you know what? I, I have some mental health issues. I've been drinking a lot. I've been home for COVID. My neighbor's dog won't start barking. And I think I'm going to shoot her. They're, they're not going to be like, good luck, bro. But if I'm like, hey, all of that happens and I think I'm going to shoot myself then they may send someone to my house. I may get some mental health. I may get, I'm going to get help. So we have to reorganize our, again, I keep coming back to, we have to reorganize our culture. And here's the thing though, Emily, men need to take this stance. We need to lead this charge. We outsource most of our emotional health to our women. So it's like, I'm fucked up. Fix me. I'm fucked up. Emotions are your world. What do I do? As opposed to looking at each other, being like, hey, we're fucked up. God, you know, we are. My team is fucked up. And instead of looking for outside resources, we need to come together and say, hey, how do we work with this? How do we actually lead the charge? When we get a million men with an idea, amazing shit happens. So you nailed it. It's, it's the secret route that we're not quite ready to talk about yet, but we have to. Yeah. And there's so much involved. You know, it, it's interesting you say that too about... Um... I, I think that there's just so many men and, and there are women like this again as well. A lot, a lot of what we're saying here could still be applied to, to women as well, but I think course, there are so many men who don't recognize that they're in pain. 
because they're seeing it so normalized that their buddies are in, are in the same position, you know, they're stuck in a miserable job and just doing the same thing every day, drinking every day or smoking weed or, you know, using porn, whatever it is. And it's, it's, we, we get trained to normalize whatever we see around us. So if we're in these bubbles, again, to bring it back to a bubble and we're in a bubble that that's considered normal, then we don't even recognize any of that as pain mm -hmm. and underlying causes. That's just, that's just the norm. That's just standard. And, sure. and when we're having these kinds of conversations, it's so interesting because a, a week or two ago, a guy I knew from university, we have not seen or spoken to each other in thir 13 years, something like that. He sent me a DM on Facebook. He's never liked a single one of my posts, nothing. He sent me a DM on Facebook and said, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with some stuff. And I was wondering if you could talk mm -hmm. and I'm like this, like that to me was this moment of like, you know, you never know. And th this applies to anyone. I mean, you never know what kind of impact you can have in the world. And if that means your own little circle of like three or four guys, three or four women, whatever it is, you have no idea what kind of impact you can have by just being available for people and like speaking your truth and speaking about these types of topics. Mm -hmm. Just normalizing it. Yeah. That's the word. It's just normalizing it. I don't proselytize. I don't drink anymore. I haven't since the day my ex left. I can't tell you how many men I know now and including people in my close circle who don't drink. And they say, it's because you stopped drinking. And I was like, yeah, but I never talked about it. I wasn't like, guys, sober's the way. There was just giving the example that like, oh, you can do it. That's normal. I can do it. Same with therapy. Same with men's groups. Same with sharing. Same with being like, no, actually, you know, I, I want to know how else you are besides fine. Like, what else are you besides good? Like asking these questions. Well, let's, let's talk about what's really going on in your marriage. It's, it's, it's not actually normal to drink four nights a week. It's not actually normal to not have sex with your partner for a year. It's not normal to be in relationships where you're afraid to bring up that you're in pain or that you're struggling. That's not normal. So let's normalize health. Let's normalize actual mental health. And again, I'm going to put this on my team. We have work to do to normalize it. It was made not normal for us culturally. And we reinforced that over and over and over and over again. Most men have been assaulted at some point in their lives as children for expressing their emotions. They're either beat up by their buddies, punched in the arm, pushed in the dirt, called a pussy, had been left in relationships. Some, there was some trauma associated, deep trauma associated with expressing their emotions. And then they've been celebrated through the culture for not expressing them. We're just powering through, getting through it, toughen up, man up, fucking did it. So we have this, this cocktail that to me, it's not hard to see like, oh, no wonder why we're here. I wonder why a guy walks into a supermarket and shoots it up. He, he's, he's a pent up, he's a ticking time bomb. The guy in Georgia was a ticking time bomb. How many of us know ticking time bombs that if it did happen, we'd be like, well, not really that surprised. Why is that normal? Why is that okay? Why is that not the aberration and the talk about, right? You've hit so many deep points of we just don't talk about shit, which is why I'm so, and I know it's my business, but why I love men's circles. 
because you actually get guys who are willing to share something. And then here's where the reorientation happens. You will get a guy who will share the most painful part of his life and then be celebrated for it. Like, oh, thank God. You, thank you so much for sharing that. You gave me so much hope and inspiration. And I'll literally watch the guy's faces go through the confusion of working through the past patterning of like the fear of being isolated, the fear of being rejected, the fear of being put down. Wait, that's not happening. I'm being celebrated. This feels authentic. I don't think he's lying. This is weird. This actually feels good. Wow, this feels really good. Oh, okay, now we've made the breakthrough. How fucking powerful is that? That's just to be able to watch that in real time, like, because you, you can, you can physically see it. It physically manifests in somebody in their, in their body language too. That's just so powerful to be able to watch that go down and to be able to help be a catalyst then for more of those conversations, because then, you know, that guy is going back to his other guy friends going, holy shit, <laughs> there's a whole world out there that we aren't talking about. And I experienced this and, and let's, let's have a conversation. Like, how are you really doing today? Yeah. And that's where we need to get it spread viral, right? We literally need men to say like that answer. I, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're fine. And so often what's underneath fine is like, how else are you besides fine? I'm about to lose my job. My wife's going to leave me and I have a sick kid. And you're like, you're not within a fucking country mile of fine. Like, let's just, let's, let's actually talk about reality. That's how we change reality. We can't live in fantasy and hope to change reality. It just doesn't work. No, no. Oh my gosh. Traver, I, I, I just have like a couple more quick questions for you because oh, I'm way. taking all your time. Um, this is so powerful. And I just think that there are so many people who are going to get so much out of, of this and out of the work that, that you put out every single day. I feel like one question that, and you, you kind of addressed this sort of at the beginning, but I'd love to almost circle back to it. And, and maybe you have a, a different sort of type of answer in relation more to this is what do you feel like we can learn the most from, from, from our pain? Mm. It's a doorway, right? Like it's, it's a, it's literally, that's the way I view it. It's a doorway. It's an opportunity. We get to look at what about like, if you, I'm a cro ex crossfitter. And so if you remember Kelly Sturette, who wrote the, yes. like, the book about the supple leopard, yep. pain is what happens when you go against nature. Like my elbow is supposed to bend this way. If I try to bend it the other way, I run into pain. So pain to me is an opportunity to look at what wasn't working that I was in denial of, what is not working that I need to address, or is this just an opportunity to sit? to go, okay, this is re learning resilience in discomfort. Is, do I, I don't, may not need to over-spiritualize it. I may not need to over-deepen it. It's just pain is part of the human experience. Darkness is part of the human experience. We are very much addicted to love and light in, this, in the West. We're addicts of it, right? We spiritually bypass constantly. This is the best thing that ever happened to me before we've actually sat in the pain. You don't know if it's the best thing that, ha that actually happens to you till years and years later. So to me, it really is a doorway, a gateway, a lens. It's something, it's a portal. Let's call it that. That if we're willing to sit in, fully experience and pass through, it will reorganize us and change us in ways that no other substance or experience can. Does that make sense? 
That's so beautifully put. Yeah, that's how I view it. And I'm and, not a masochist just for people listening to this. I'm not like, <laughs> yay, pain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to bring it full circle, that all of, all of what you just described requires a great deal of presence. It requires a great deal of presence. And I would also say that pleasure, it's a whole other conversation, is an equally important portal. Yes. So, but true pleasure, actual pleasure, not doped up pleasure, not superficial pleasure. But yeah, it's, it's about being human. It's about sitting in this, in my body, in the present moment, in the reality of what's going on right now. There's so much information that distraction and numb blocks me from experiencing. Like imagine trying to read a book, but every fifth page, there's three pages without typing on them. And then you carry on. You're like, I don't really know what's happening right now. That's most people's story unfolding. They're missing key parts of the story. They're missing the gems. They're missing the juice, right? I remember the day my ex left sitting on the couch and hearing this beautiful, whatever download. I don't give a fuck what we call it of you need to stay here. You need to sit in this. If you allow this to change you, it will turn you into who you've always wanted to be. And I was like, I don't know who fucking said that. <laughs> um, one, go fuck yourself. Two, okay, I'll try it. I'll, I'll just, for the first time in my life, I'll surrender to the perhaps that maybe this is the way. And so I have immense compassion and empathy for people who are going through pain, who are going through loss. And yet we are not taught in the West how powerful of a substance it actually is. And I wish we were. And men yeah. especially, because you, you nailed it in the beginning. I, will, I could tell guys, I've done this. They're like, I need you guys all to run a 10K with a weight vest. And they're like, fuck yeah, I'm so into this. This is so awesome. <laughs> and the next you know, week, like, okay, I want you to answer this question. If my pain could speak to me today, it would say. And they're like, bro fuck that shit. I'm not going there. <laughs> I need you to dive down a flight of stairs head first. Okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. So accurate though. How do you feel in this moment? Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up there. <laughs> what do you mean? How are you really doing? I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> it's not our world though, Emily. That's what I think yeah. we need men to realize and women to realize that it's just not our domain. So it's equally terrifying to go into it as I use the analogy of for, for a lot of women, like I loved fighting in a cage. That was my domain. Imagine how terrifying it would be if I took you right now, shoved a mouthpiece in your mouth, put some gloves on you and like, hey, you're going to go in there and fight that person. Most people would, would shut down or they'd freak out or they'd shit themselves. That's literally how a lot of men feel when we say, hey, we're going to go to therapy. We're going to ask you to look at wounds that you don't have the skill or the capacity to alchemize. Like that's, that's what we call torture. And so I, I'm not telling, I'm not saying that those men don't have to learn those skills, but to thrust them into a world that they have no agency in, or no, not, not agency. They don't have any capacity to handle is, is cruel and unfair. And, and what I think is interesting is that most of, of, I believe the majority of, of your audience typically is women, right? It's 72% female. <laughs> it's so interesting how this works. That like the women, we all just really want to understand the men more. And then if we feel like if we can then explain it, then we can also explain it to like the men in our life or to like, then be like, Hey, Hey, there's this guy named Trevor. <laughs> you should go check out. You should go learn from him. 
That's what I wish women realized. You are the enrollers. You are the message spreaders. It was literally in a deep meditation I had like eight, 10 weeks into my separation where it was, boom, women are the message spreaders of the world. And this was pre uncivilized. This was pre all of it. I was already getting the downloads of if you want to get a message out to the male culture, you have to enroll women to take it to them. And the first thousand copies of my book were bought by women. Wow. And yet now it's slowly reaching the part where more men are now buying it than women. More men are now actually spreading it. But I needed the message spread on the wings of the feminine in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, so powerful. Oh my gosh. Okay. Trevor, we're going to wrap up. Um, and we didn't even get into some of your other story, like the year to live. My God, like I'm going to be linking everything up in the show notes or else we're going to have to do part two, one or the other. <laughs> okay. We might have to do that. Cause I could, I could just keep talking to you all day. Um, so where can people connect with you? Mm, I'm spending less and less time on there, but it's still my main platform is Instagram. And that's at Traver Boehm, T-R-A-V-E-R-B-O-E-H-M. Or my website is manuncivilized.com. That's where you can get the book. Uh, guys who want to join an amazing group of men, my uncivilized nation. I have courses there, but mostly I'm doing my public work on Instagram. Love it. Right and I'll, I'll link up like your TED Talks and all of that stuff as well and, and your books and all of that. Um, and just last question is if you could give people one piece of advice on growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? Sit. Mm. sit quietly. Like oh, I can say it 50,000 times. All of the information is there. Everything you need to work through whatever it is that you want to work through to break through whatever layer or um, yeah, layer is probably the right word. Membrane to break through whatever membrane you need to get through. It's all going to come from stillness and silence and I know that's not popular, especially with guys. You're going to be like, well, what's the four-part series that I can do to be more present? It's literally stop, turn your phone off, turn your computer off, sit, and feel what comes up. Yeah, and believe in yourselves. Like, for fuck's sake, you guys are powerful. Believe in yourself. I love this. Oh, my gosh. Traver, thank you so much. You've been so incredibly generous with your time, your knowledge, and what a conversation. I can't wait to share this. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. It means the absolute world to me, and I'm so grateful. For any references in the episode and all show notes, be sure to jump over to roomtogrowpodcast.com. And if this episode touched your heart, it would mean so much if you would take a quick second to hit subscribe, write a review, and share on social media or with someone who really needs to hear today's message. It makes such a difference to keep this podcast going so I can continue to bring you amazing content and absolutely incredible guests. Be sure to tag me over on Instagram at Emily Goff Coach so that I can thank you in real time for listening and connect with you. We're back every Tuesday and Thursday with new episodes and I'm looking forward to growing with you.